You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. Todd Steumann and I have a number of years of experience working on that little campus over there called the University of Texas, uh, working with an organization, uh, formerly Camps Crusade, now Crew, if you want to be in the know. And um, we had the privilege of working with a lot of great students, Kendall being one, Nathan Sherman being one. We have a number of former students in our church, and um, James was, was one of those students, and wasn't just one of those students. Um, I've said this before about him in a variety of settings, but I never saw a single student have as much of an impact on his friends as James Wood did in the SAE house at the University of Texas. And um, the beginnings of James' story are not so glorious, um, dating back to when he came on summer project with us in Lake Tahoe. And uh, when he got there, he was like, how long are we supposed to be here? It's like all summer, you know? He's like, wait, I don't know. Wait, what am I doing? What is this thing called Campus Crusade? You know, so that's James' beginning. He's gone through all of the stages and is now the, the director of the crew ministry over at the University of Texas and a member of our church. And so as we have a, a view toward church planting in the long term and raising up leaders in our church... Uh, and now and then we like to have some of our, our young dudes uh, preach so that we can get to know them, hear for their perspective, what God's doing in their life, um, but also so that we can haze them afterward as we train men to lead the mission of God in, in Austin. Well, hello. As Will said, my name is James. Um, I usually, whenever Will introduces me for anything, I know that he's both going to really encourage me and then try to embarrass me a little bit. So I appreciate that that tradition has continued. Uh, so I will share some stories about uh, my time in college. I'm a gospel community leader here uh, in our church with my wife, Claire. Uh, She's back there. And uh, we also serve on staff with Crew, the ministry Will was telling you about. And so as you would assume, we have a huge heart for college students. And that heart, for me, has increased over the years, so much so that I've even gone to different parts of the world to minister to college students. And I wanted to tell you a story uh, about one of my friends that I met in a small country called East Asia. And uh, his name is Sunshine. And I met him at one of the campuses there in East Asia. And a little background is, uh, in that country, they will often give themselves American names. Uh, you know, just like we would do if like, we took like, Spanish or French class, we'd give ourselves like, names. Uh, but they don't feel the need to like, limit themselves to common American names. They'll just pick any noun that's available. You know, which is really weird. It's like people picking nouns like apple or blue ivy. Um, <clears throat> I guess it's not so weird. Well, he chose sunshine, and uh, we met that summer. Um, and what I wanted to do is actually tell you the best, about the best part of our friendship, which was the end of it, uh, when we said goodbye for the summer. Sunshine wanted to say goodbye in a very specific way, so he had planned it out and then invited me to come. And he invited me to a thing called a KTV bar. And I didn't really know much about what that was. And as I walked up, I realized it was a karaoke bar. And what was interesting is that the way that they do that uh, there is that it's a, pri- you rent a private room. And it's just reserved for you. So it's me and Sunshine alone singing karaoke songs to Lionel Richie and drinking bubble tea. Uh, it was awesome. And, uh, but I did it proudly, you know. And so why would I do that? You know, why would I subject myself uh, to something that I would never willingly choose on my own? Well, it's because Sunshine was my friend. And Sunshine had a lot of value in my eyes. And, be, and that's how he wanted to say goodbye, and I wanted to honor that. Well, uh, to give some more insight, actually, to, into our friendship, earlier that summer, Sunshine had let me into some intimate details about his life. Um, he had told me that he was very, felt very lonely, um, even amongst many friends, and he was very anxious um, 
he was very stressed out that he would not be able to perform well in his classes and be able to get a job in a competitive market so that he could be able to provide for his family. And for him and in that, in that culture, um, that would make you almost nothing in this life, that you had failed. And so uh, this was, he told me about this and he told me how depressed he was and that um, he was seriously actually considering suicide. Um, and he had never told anyone that before. Well, I, I wanted to share this story with you guys because um, it reminded me of identity confusion. You see, I, I sense something in sunshine of value, and yet he wondered if he had any worth. And that brings us to the question that I want to discuss with us today is, how is a person to view himself or herself? What makes us valuable? Um, what is our identity? This is important because our identity, um, our sense of ourself, shapes everything about us and our interactions in the world. Last week, uh, Will shared, as he started our series, um, he shared about going to a Les Miserables play with his wife. And uh, how as you walk in uh, to the venue, they handed them a pamphlet with some background information for the play. Because it's like a big book. You can't like fit everything from that book into the play. And so they give you some, some, uh, some background information so you can kind of dive into the story and be caught up a little bit. Will chose to not read that. And uh, he was lost, confused, and bored. He even fell asleep. Um, because he didn't know the necessary background information. He didn't know the stories of the characters uh, and the, way, the parts that they played. Then he started our series in Genesis by detailing how the gospel, this message that, we, uh, that sinners are saved by the life, death, and resurrection, the gospel only makes sense in light of the grand, true story of creation and its centerpiece, creator God. And so, well, the same is true for humanity. We need to know our part in this story so that we're able to play it well and, and to treat others accordingly. Humans evaluate the worth of everything. We, do, we value stocks, we rank teams, we rate movies and restaurants, and we, and we do it all in light of their performance. And so I think we're actually prone to evaluate our self-worth in the same way, in light of our performance. And we tend towards, uh, when we do really well, we have uh, high self-esteem, or if we do poorly, um, we maybe self-loathe. And we kind of swing in between those often. But I want to say that, um, that, that both of those, of those expressions are self-centered and, and independent solutions to the problem of human identity. They result either in pride, if I do really well and I have a lot of abilities, um, then I'm, I'm very proud of myself. Or in depression, if I, if I fail and do miserably. These views affect us personally and they divide us from others. If, if we're uh, basing our value on our self-esteem and how good we are at things, we inevitably will compete and compare against other people. Uh, if, we do, if we are loathe ourselves and are depressed, we are unable to serve and love people because we can't even see them because we're so focused inwardly on ourselves. Well, I just want to say um, where I want to go tonight is I, I think the biblical identity of man created in the image of God uh, provides us with a truer identity that is both God-centered and others-oriented. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Lord, we uh, thank you so much for how you've created us. We pray that um, you would help us understand it today so that our hearts might be lifted up to you and not towards self. I ask that you would be with me and all of us as we hear from your word. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So I just want to give a brief definition of what the image of God is. This won't answer all the questions or describe it 
in completion, but it'll give us some tracks to run on. Here's, here's a simple definition. Uh, to be the image of God means that humanity is the most perfect picture of God in the world. And that means we are to look like God, well, we do look like God, and we're to act like God in the world for his purposes. All humans are made in that image. It's not based on any capacities or the, the performances of any individual person. It's not on our, based on our language or reasoning abilities or the things that we do that are good. It, it's, it's an identity that God's given us. So Christian, atheist, rich, homeless, genius, mentally challenged, Olympic athlete, physically disabled, unborn child, elderly, Mother Teresa, murderer. They all bear and are made in the image of God in some way. It's not dependent on anything they do or any abilities they have. It's an identity that God has given. In our future sermons, we're going to discuss more of what that, how that image functions in the world of things like marriage and work and rest. But today, all I'm wanting to do is talk about the identity that we have, uh, the sense of significance we receive as we see ourselves in that way and the way that that changes how we uh, treat others. And so I've got three points today, and um, it's, it's that because we are created in the image of God, we must view people in light of these three things. Dignity, dependence, and depravity. And so we'll start with dignity. If you want to open up the text, I'm just going to be briefly looking in Genesis 1 and 2. And I'm just going to start with chapter, uh, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. I'm just going to stop there. We see that we are the image of God, as we've already talked about. And part of that means we are made in God's likeness. Uh, that makes a lot of sense in this chapter where everything else in the creation is according to its kind. Plants and animals, vegetation, everything is according to its kind. And so when humanity comes on the scene, we see that we're according to the king. We're according to God. Herman Bovink, a, a systematic theologian, said this, Among creatures, humanity is the supreme and most perfect revelation of God. So we're like a statue revealing God to the world. And actually, it's interesting that the Hebrew word for image actually also means statue. And in this culture, which is called the ancient Near East, um, kings would put up images for themselves all over the empire. They would be statues and other things that resembled the king, and they were often made out of expensive materials, basically to convey the worth of the one they represented. And their function was that they would, would remind the people who was in charge, who was the king over them. And so they would look to the statue and they'd be like, oh yeah, that's right, King Nebuchadnezzar. Actually, King Nebuchadnezzar did it in Daniel 3. It's one uh, image or place in the Bible where we see that this happening uh, throughout history. But what's interesting is that the only person in this, in this time and culture that was ever called the image of God was the king or the pharaoh. These were all these images of the, of the pharaoh, but the only person who was ever called the image of God was the king and the pharaoh. And, it's, and Moses is leading the Hebrew people out of bondage and slavery under pharaoh at this time that God uses him to write this book. And he's basically saying, hey guys who used to be in slavery, you're all kings. You're all like pharaoh. This is a good reminder because everyone we meet still has this title and this dignity. Throughout the rest of scripture, uh, we'll see that even in our fallen state, humanity is the image of God in some way. And so we should treat every person we meet like royalty. The person who cuts you off in traffic, who messes up your coffee order in Medici, 
or speaks ill of you to your friends, uh, our heart attitude in response to that should be like, go ahead, your majesty. You know, they, they have so much dignity that um, we should recognize that. Humanity is the climax, the crown of creation. Last week, Will clearly showed us in Genesis 1 that, uh, that Genesis 1 is first and foremost about creator God. He's the only one that does anything in Genesis 1 at the beginning of creation. But he also pointed out that the crown of his creation is humanity. Everything else feels like it's building up to this moment where man is introduced to the scene. The, the tone of the passage, to me, feels like new parents who are awaiting the birth of their child. And they're preparing the nursery, thoughtfully, expectantly waiting for their child to come home and to having something beautiful and restful and warm to welcome their child into. That's what creation feels like. And it even feels like that because the first words that are spoken to Adam and Eve are blessing. If you look at verse 28, just the beginning, it says, and God blessed them. It's almost as if Adam and Eve woke up, breathed their first breath, and had consciousness, and the first thing they heard was, I love you. You're blessed. You're good. Welcome home. We have value because of how God created us and because of his words spoken to us about us. This is important because I believe we, even Christians, are tempted to think of ourselves as something akin to costume jewelry. We kind of know what's expected of us in life, and we know what we should look like on the outside, and so we do the deeds and put on the face, but deep down, we, we feel that we're worthless. We wonder, does anybody love us? Do we have value? When really our situation is something more like tarnished silver. Mar- we are marvelously beautiful in our created original state, and deep down, tremendously valuable. And yet we have these impurities and imperfections that are hiding the dignity and value beneath that we must work those things out. So one of the ways that we honor God is by seeing ourselves in the way he sees us. How do you tend to view yourself? Like costume jewelry or tarnished silver? Don't look at what you do or fail to do in this life, but who you are. You're the image of God. You're the crown of creation, kings and queens. But, as you know, if we only knew this, we might be tempted to have too inflated view of ourselves, which leads us to our next point, dependence. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. And just stop there. We can't forget that we're created. There's a distinction between the creator and everything else that he creates. The image of God is not God. We are not like him in some very important ways. In Isaiah 46, um, God says, To whom should you compare me that I should be like him? And in chapter 58, he also says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. So we're not like God in some important ways, even in creation. And that should humble us. If you look over to uh, verse 7 in chapter 2, which we finished on, We see that man was created from dust. So with all the dignity we have, we must remember that we were made from dust. We are not um, in charge of reality. We are brought forth into it by the word of God from dust. We are insufficient in ourselves, even for our own existence. So we're a statue, but we're like a fragile statue. can be easily broken. 
We don't define reality. God speaks, and it is. We weren't even able to have our own life without God. And so we definitely don't get to set the rules of how reality works. We must submit to the realities that we see and sense in creation. Um, As Tim Keller once said, if you don't, you have the choice not to, but reality bites back. So I cannot live accordingly to the things God reveals and the way things are, um, but will be to my own ill. All the rest of creation, rocks, plants, and animals, they all have to submit to God's voice without choice. They all do it just by nature of their existence. A rock doesn't have to question whether or not he will be as he was intended to be or it will be as it was intended to be. It just does. But we have the choice. The creator, but the creator defines how things work. And so our choice is to submit. He defines what it means for us to be the image. And so we need, in a sense, the instructions. And you see this here, right? If you go back to verse 28... God blesses us, but he also immediately gives us commands. You see, commands are not a part of the fall, primarily. They existed because we are created and need God's direction for our own joy and flourishing. Um, when he, and he tells us a command, like, be fruitful, multiply, don't eat of this tree. What he's asking us is, is to trust him and obey He's giving us direction, and that direction is to become more like him in the world. We're given an identity that is outside of ourselves and our own making. He gives it to us. And this reminds me of um, really uh, when I interact with with people who come from very healthy families and uh, their family's very much intact. And one thing I see is that that family has a strong sense of identity. And they have it not as just individuals, but as a unit. And so you'll hear strong, like healthy families say things like, hey, you're a Johnson. That's not how Johnsons act. You know, this is how we, this is how we do things in our family. And there's a sense of like, there, there are expectations upon them because of their identity as a part of this family. Yeah, there are restrictions, but there's also direction to become who they were truly intended to be. It's like they're saying, I love you, welcome home, and this is how we act in our family. You see, we need direction from God um, for our life. We must follow him because he created. But further than that, not only were we made from dust, but we were also made naked. And I think for me, it seems like there's a sense of neediness in that. That um, we were not complete in, in, in our creation. We were good, but not everything God intended us to be. We were still made incomplete and insufficient in ourselves. And so what God directs us towards in his commands is not just obedience for obedience sake, but he directs us towards dependence upon him. He wants us to mature by growing in our intimacy and our joy in him. He wants us to grow to be like God, but also to be near God. It's almost as if we're an empty cup to be filled with God's life. As Will talked about, Will said earlier, we have our form and we're to be filled with God. This is just part of what it means to be created, that God embedded in us a potential to become more like him and more in love with him. Bavink also says this, after creating men and women in his own image, God showed them their destiny and the only way in which they could reach it. God wanted the image in man to develop. And here's where I think the statue language falls short. If, if the image is supposed to grow and develop and progress, 
that doesn't sound like an image. I think something that's a little bit better might be a child. And actually, the language of child and image is paired together in Genesis 5 when we hear about Adam and his son Seth. And it's said that Seth is born in Adam's image. And childlike language is used throughout Scripture to describe the type of faith we have in God. And to be childlike in, in our faith is not to be ignorant or naive or irresponsible. It's to be dependent and trusting. A child is born looking like their parents, but also looking to their parents for provision and direction. And the parents are hoping that they would help them grow. The way this works in our natural families is that we move from dependence often to independence. The parents are trying to help us grow and mature to be on our own two feet, so to speak. And so therefore, maturity equals independence. But in God's family, that's not how it works at all. In God's family, we move from to, to greater maturity and likeness to God and greater intimacy with him by growing deeper in our dependence upon him. The Christian never grows out of dependence. So the choice is presented to man, all humankind. The choice that's presented is intimate communion through trusting obedience. God wants us to grow for the sake of our intimacy. That was the destiny of the image that was presented to Adam and Eve. Likeness to God and life in God. Just as a flower without the light of the sun will wither and die, so man was created without the light and breath and life and pleasure of God that we would be incomplete and without fullness of who we were created to be. So what God is offering to the image is himself, which is the greatest gift that he could give. Nothing in creation is better than the creator. And so we need not only direction from God, but direction to God. Not only to follow God, but to fall in love with him. And even though I think this is a beautiful truth, it totally grates against our desires and pursuit of independence, which says that we are in control. We can complete ourselves. We are sufficient in ourselves for our own joy. We should be able to do what we want to do and need no one else. And I just want to say I can really relate to that. Uh, I was to tell you a little bit about my childhood. Um, my mother's here today, and uh, we grew up in a, in a single mother household, single parent household, and really had no father figure around. And at first, I kind of liked this um, thought of independence that I had with a mom who had to work very hard to provide for my brother and I. And I, as the oldest son, I could pretty much be my own authority. And I actually spent much of my childhood and young adulthood trying to prove to myself and other people that I didn't need anyone. But it started to become pretty clear to me as the years went on that I didn't know what I was doing. I was anxious about my future, confused about my identity, and had no idea what it meant really to be a man. I realized how much I wanted and needed a male role model, an image to follow, and someone to bless me. And so I sought a father figure out in coaches and teachers, deep down knowing that I needed direction and feeling lost and scared without it. But those men often didn't have the time or the energy to provide in that way. And then came Ben. Ben was a campus minister. I met him when, he was, when I was a freshman, and he came to speak at my fraternity about what it meant to be a man and helping us process through the decisions we make now shaping the man we will become later. I knew that this was an important topic at the time, obviously, as I've shared, 
But I also was just drawn to Ben for his profound sense of security and confidence. Later that year, I came to Christ through Ben, and he really became a father figure to me. I remember I would ask him over the years if he would just like tell me what to do with my life. Like on things like little things, like, okay, where should I like hang out today? To like big things, like what should I do for work? And Ben uh, would be really annoying and never give me direct answers. And, uh, but just give me questions to help me think and uh, make decisions responsibly myself. But he also, though, on top of that, did model to me what it meant to be a man who depended in and delighted in God. And then he pointed me to the Bible. You know, but our relationship wasn't all pretty either. There were times of challenge and conflict. You know, but I've never once doubted Ben's heart in wanting my best. And I have much greater confidence in who I am and who I'm becoming because of him. You see, the problem with independence is that we were created with need. Not just, not for forgiveness originally, but for God. Our souls are restless until they find rest in him, Augustine said. Even in paradise, we were finite, dependent creatures, not infinite, independent creators. True joy and identity is only found in one place, in delight in and dependence on God. So my question for you is, do you accept those terms? Do you delight in your need for God, or do you pride yourself in your self-sufficiency and independence? You know, we were created to be joyfully dependent upon him. Accepting our limitations along with delighting in his perfect provision, which was his presence and pleasure in us. In creation, we were intended to look to God in his good rule, in his voice of affirmation, and yet in the fall, what we see is we start to look to self. And that brings us to our last point, depravity. I'm not able to look at Genesis 3 much, we'll look at it in the coming weeks, but what we see in Genesis 3 is that Adam and Eve wanted to be like God in ways that it was not intended them to be. You see, our original destiny was intimacy with God, but not equality with him. But what Adam and Eve did was they grasped after God's rule. What Satan tempted them with was being like God and rejecting the terms of the relationship. The great status they were given wasn't enough. They wanted the whole shebang. They didn't want the limitations. But the problem is, You can't have two ultimate sources of identity. You can't can't want God and want to be God yourself. If you throw him out of his throne, you don't get um, all the blessings of his rule. And so Adam and Eve used used the gift of choice that God gave them to to love him and depend on him and instead rejected and, um, and rebelled against him. Anthony Hokemus says, What makes sin so heinous is that man prostitutes such splendid gifts that were given to him. And so we're given the gift of choice. We're given the gift to love and delight in God. And we choose, we use that gift of choice to rebel and spit in his face. And because of that, the nature of the image became corrupted. We can't, um, something was changed internally in that moment no longer depending on God and therefore displaying him to the creation, we now become a defaced statue. No longer functioning as we should, we now confuse the world with this ruined image. We have hints of our former glory that are embedded forever, yet they're shrouded in in the shadow of corruption. It's It's because grasping after God's rule, we also rejected his blessing. We rejected our dependence 
and the, given, uh, the dignity given to us, and we receive shame. In chapter 3, verse 7, you see that Adam and Eve realized they were naked, which they always were, but now they're ashamed and scared. And God comes and brings a different voice than he had originally. Originally, God's word to man was blessing and guidance, and now his word to us is interrogation and cursing. We return, he promises that we will return to dust in chapter 3, verse 19, because we grasped for deity. See, we want to define ourselves and live without limitations, but we can't escape our need for someone else to speak blessing to us, to tell us that we're valuable. We can't look at the mirror and convince ourselves that we're worth something in ourselves. God embedded this need into our createdness. We were never meant to be independent. We were meant to become more and more like God while, while we grew more in love with God. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We read that today. But what, man, what Adam and Eve did is they rejected that for their independence, but then realized that they were naked, ashamed, and empty. They were already naked, and that wasn't a problem. It's as if up until then, uh, their eyes had been totally directed up to God. Uh, delighting in him. And what they received back from him was the affirmation and blessing from him. So they had no reason to even look at themselves and have a different idea about who they were. They just listened to the affirmation and blessing of God. But now, looking down, without the blessing of God, they begin to have to fend for themselves, and they start hiding. What is their identity? The first words that Adam and Eve heard were, I love you, you're good, Welcome home. But then when the fall happens, what humanity hears is rejection, judgment, and eviction. There's this gnawing sense of guilt and emptiness and insecurity. The question now becomes constantly, and for all of us, who am I? And people who um, are on the the spectrum of self-esteem and self-loathing, I'll say even though uh, we, both of those people, all of us, um, are seeking our identity and our independence, we inevitably express this need to have someone else speak to us through codependency, needing other people to give us an identity. You see, again, we have to be filled with something else outside of us. We must hear blessing and affirmation from someone. In independence, we view other people as the competition that makes us feel good about ourselves. Yet, if God no longer speaks his affirmation to us, These people are no longer our competition, but they're our court of judgment. Um, Their approval or rejection defining how we view ourselves. Um, I want to read a quote um, from Don Miller's book, uh, Searching for God Knows What, which um, has really helped me process this. He says, If man was wired so that something outside himself told him who he was, and if God's presence was giving him a feeling of fulfillment, then when that relationship was broken man would be pining for other people to tell him that he was good, right, okay with the world, and eternally secure. So if God's voice no no longer does that, we turn to other people to do it for him. And he says this feeling must have been so painful for Adam and Eve, this feeling of having an infinite amount of love pouring through their lives and then suddenly it's gone. I wondered how terrible it must have felt at the fear of no longer feeling God's pleasure and presence at the ache of emptiness and the sudden and horrifying awareness of self. You see, we we feel empty without that voice and we seek to fill it with others. 
A friend of mine, a man that I know, is a great picture of this. Um, I really respect him and how God's helped him process through this. But years ago, um, this man was at the top of his field and came, um, became addicted to prescription medication. He reflects on that time saying this, My life was built on two premises. One, that I could control your opinion and approval of me through my performance. And two, that was all that mattered. You see, we all do that. We're all wanting other people to clap for us uh, and anxious and scared if they don't. You see, in our, in our, um, what we've done is run from dependence on one person and we've moved towards dependence on all sorts of others. And it, when our pursuits of independence for our identity, we, again, we view people as competition. Um, we worship self to the exclusion of others. But in our codependency, we worship others to feel good about ourselves. So consider these questions. Are you obsessed with what others think about you? Are you crippled by rejection? Can you receive correction without being devastated? Who do you insatiably want to approve of you? We see these tendencies everywhere. In our social network addictions, our fear of missing out on social experiences, our lust for success, our constant comparisons, our inordinate craving for a spouse to just complete us, and our pursuit of being on the inner circle. These are just pictures of how we need this voice to give us an identity. But I just want to make a claim that even if you got approval from those people, it wouldn't satisfy you. Deep down, you know that theirs is not the voice that truly matters. Don Miller says this later in the book, so many times I don't feel like I have any glory at all. I feel like I'm in a lifeboat before a jury of peers trying to get other people to say that I'm important and valued. But even when they do, it feels as if though their opinion isn't strong enough to give me the feeling that, that I need, the feeling that quit at the fall. We all have that feeling. If this is who we are, enslaved to being defined by our performance and the approval of others, how can we escape? If the voice from anything in creation will not satisfy, how do we again receive the blessing of the voice that truly satisfies? It would seem like we need deliverance. And God wants to. Even in the fall in Genesis 3, God came back to Adam and Eve, shivering in their shame, knowing that they had corrupted the image, the crown of his creation. And he does judge them, but he also clothes them. This clothing is a picture, this provisional deliverance in spite of their shame. But it wasn't true restoration, bringing them back to their original dignity in nature. And all of humanity is still born in that corrupted image of Adam. And so we will need another human head, both to look to as a model and to renew us in our nature. And that's Jesus. Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, took on human flesh to become the perfect image for us and in us. For us, Jesus depended on God perfectly in this life. You see, as Satan tempted Adam and Eve by trying to reject God's rule over their lives, Satan tried to tempt Jesus in the desert um, to also reject God's rule. To have, Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and saying, you can have all authority over these if you would just reject worship of God. And Jesus said, God is the only one that deserves our worship and our service. And he, 
He modeled that throughout his life, perfect obedience and dependence on God. <clears throat> in, second, or in Colossians 1.15, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and he is the perfect radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. And now, as we are in him, we receive the words of blessing again because he perfectly lived it out. Our lives are hidden in Christ, and therefore we are co-heirs and brothers with him. So that when God says to Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, because we are brothers and co-heirs with Christ, we know that he's also saying that to us. He also renews the image in us. He gives us the blessing, but he also gives us the, the nature of dependence that we need it again. He renews and perfects the, the image in us as we are changed into his perfect image. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we're progressively being renewed in Christ's image. And I want to read uh, briefly as we close 1 Corinthians 15. You can turn there with me. Listen to the parallel but also the development of the image of God in Christ. Look at chapter 15, verses... Um, I'm sorry, first, I'm in Romans. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verses 49, 45 through 49. Let me read this to you. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are we, or are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of, man, of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. You, you see, Jesus renews us, but he takes us even further. Uh, He renews um, our our nature, um, but promises us that we will progress into the perfect image of God, following Christ in heaven. That's our destiny. And so, Christian, I just want to say, if you struggle with your identity, hear these things. Don't loathe yourself. You are not defined by your failures. Stop trying to prove yourself to others. You have no reason to anxiously uh, vie, uh, anxiously perform for the approval of other people. Don't expect perfection from other people either. This image is being perfected in us. It's growing. We, we have no reason to be surprised if others fail us. But we also have no reason to pine for their approval. There's, we don't have a reason to live as if we are empty, seeking to be filled by the opinions of others. You see, you are significant, because of, not because of what you do or because of what others say, but because of what Christ has done and what the Father says. You see, the way that Jesus renews us in his image absolutely should change us from the inside. Tim Keller says in Counterfeit Gods, our hearts, all of man's hearts say, I will ascend. I will be most high for my own sake. But Jesus says, I will descend. I will go low low for their sakes. He comes down and descends by taking on our dependence and taking the punishment for our depravity so that we will rise up and ascend in him with receiving everything that he's earned for us on the cross. 
You see, we sought to be like God, leading to our return to dust. God became man, leading to our deliverance. The renewal in the image of Christ turns us back to where we always were intended to be, leading us to look outside of ourselves for our security and identity and putting it solely in the voice of the Father, the only voice that matters. This type of identity actually enables us to love other people. We no longer need them. They're not the competition or the court of our identity. They are co-image bearers of God. And if they're brothers and sisters in Christ, they're co-heirs with Christ. Part of our love to them will be telling them about this Christ and how they can be restored in his image. We can talk about the change that we've had and the hope that they can have to become truly human in the image of Christ. I got to speak this that summer to, to Sunshine. As we, as we closed that summer, I got to tell him about the God who'd created him and loves him deeply and offers him hope in Jesus. Absolutely, Sunshine deserved my attention and my time in that karaoke bar because he's made in the image of God. But he's also made for so much more. And I pray that someday he'll turn to Christ and he'll bear the image of him forever in heaven with me as we rejoice and delight and depend on our God. Would you pray with me? Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.